My name is Richard Hopkins, and you're listening to me on Above and Beyond. Hi all, it's Mike Myers here with another episode of Above and Beyond, brought to you by the Reengineering Australia Foundation. Here we are with uh, Richard Hopkins. Now, Richard is the former head of operations at the four-time world champion Red Bull Formula One team. So Richard turned his uh, boyhood dream into a reality and at 16 stopped being a spectator and became involved in F1. I'm not going to tell Richard's story, I'm going to leave that to him. Over a 15-year period, uh, Richard's been involved in 509 Grand Prix, spanning 28 seasons, was involved in Red Bull's 50 Grand Prix victories, and even now, just most recently, has won the International Solar Challenge from Darwin to Adelaide. But we'll get to that in a minute. So, Richard, you are a hero, a role model of uh, <laughs> somebody that's done some amazing stuff. So where did this all start? I'd like to think of myself as a hero. Uh, maybe others might. I, I certainly don't. Uh, hopefully my wife and daughter do. But certainly probably, probably growing up exactly that. Formula One became my passion at a very early age. I think it was really from my, my parents giving me a scare electric slot car racing kit and understanding that you could do things to those cars and change their characteristics and the dynamics of the cars. And this is me at four or five years old. So, you know, I was hooked pretty quick. And as I, as I say to many people, and they're really surprised about the fact that my parents never even owned a car. So I don't know really where my passion for cars came from. But it became, you know, evident it was there and it became uh, evident that it was early on. And, uh, and that sort of led into watching motorsport, Formula One on, on the television. Way back then, we're talking sort of mid-70s, late-70s. Formula One wasn't broadcast live in the way it is today. And the whole package, every lap and all the spiel before the Grand Prix, it was a highlights package. It was, you know, 35, 40 minutes, Murray Walker and James Hunt. But I was hooked and they were late Sunday evenings. But I was hooked and uh, I got the posters on my wall and and it it was an absolute passion of mine. Now, back then, did I ever envisage that I would be... 28 years long within the industry? Absolutely not. I think way back then as a, a child, I, I looked at these these heroes, whether they be drivers or the mechanics, the engineers or the team owners, as as astronauts, as, as something way beyond my dreams. But obviously that changed. So when you were young, did you want to be an engineer? What Did you have any perspectives in your mind or were you just living life and enjoying it? I think living life, enjoying it. I think I, I always had that technical interest, whether it be scale electrics, Meccano's kits and building things. I was very good, you know, it's a cliche, but I was very good at taking things apart and really bad at putting them back together again. So I was inquisitive, you know, with my with my push bikes. I'd always want to, you know, service those at a young age. So yeah, I had that technical interest. So I had a drawing board. I had a big full-size old-school drawing board in my bedroom. It's funny, I was digging out some post, uh, some photographs the other day during the summer break, and I came across some photographs of me in my bedroom with my drawing board and all the posters of the drivers and the cars on the wall. So, yeah. So I was, I was into drawing. I was into technical drawing. 
So whether I got to the point in my mind that Formula One wasn't an option, maybe it'd be something else technical. So uh, I was probably destined to go down that route. Uh, I was interested in, in aircraft and maybe being an airline pilot was probably more of a reality to me than getting involved in Formula One. I would have thought at that time too, the focus that school wasn't on marks, it was just on getting through school. My memory of a childhood was about you went to school and had fun and these days poor kids are pushed to have this ATAR and all the other stuff that was around. Yeah, I, yeah. look, I've got a, I've got a 12-year-old daughter now and, and some of the pressures that are being put on her to achieve were, you know, uh, I, I don't remember it being that way. I don't remember it being that way. Hey, maybe when we were young, Mike, it was is all a bit different. We were climbing trees and riding bikes, not not playing on iPads and stuff. So I think the world's moved on a bit, but I think education has changed significantly too. Maybe it was more fun. Maybe it was a little bit less academic. Maybe those demands were different on high school children than they are today. Whether that's right or wrong, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, I I I, I kind of enjoyed school. Perception is that a lot of those skills that you learnt, um, you know, crashing bikes and fixing them and doing all that kind of stuff, is the stuff that drives you in when you're trying to make a Formula One team work. I mean, you know, you've got a problem, you've broken, you've got to fix it, you've got to get back out there and be the kid next door again. I mean, that was something that's built in that seems to not exist so much in kids these days, and that's a very broad perception. But yeah, I think look not jumping straight forward to what I'm doing today at the University of New South Wales, but the understanding and now the belief that project-based learning is as important as academic learning, if not more so, is paramount. Whether that's bled down into high schools today, um, maybe it's something that certainly F1 in schools is, is, is promoting. But yes, I had that, that practical knowledge growing up. It wasn't necessarily something school gave me. It was something that was around me. You know, as I said earlier, my, my, my parents didn't own a car, but the, the thing that everybody did on a Sunday morning, if you were a eight, nine, 10 year old boy, was you gave your dad a hand fixing his car, changing the spark plugs and everything else, because they always broke down, obviously, back then. And that was the thing you did. So you knew what an eight mil spanner was, whereas nowadays I'm not entirely sure kids are, are so aware of that, unfortunately. Right. So 16, what happened that got you involved with, at that stage, Brevum? I think there's been some, let's call them lucky breaks, but not to use another cliche, but you, you make your chances too. And maybe all my career is a little bit of luck, but certainly putting myself in the right place at the right time and promoting myself and, and having the desire to succeed. It was a week's work experience I had to do. I was 15, it's 1986, sort of probably October 1986, not to pin it down too finely. School teacher said that everybody needed to do a week's work experience. And, and for me, I, that was it. I was all lost. What am I going to do? All my other friends were going to supermarkets to stack shelves, etc., which I wasn't overly keen on doing. Maybe I was always somebody that wanted to do something slightly different, whatever it was. I, if everybody was playing football, I was happy to be the goalkeeper because that was the different position to be. And maybe there was, there was always part of that in my DNA, wanting to not be spotted as being the unusual one, but wanting to, I don't know, just self sort of... Take on the roles that others don't want to take on. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit of that. And if that's going to get me some sort of notoriety... Maybe. I, I, I don't think I've ever been a show-off per se, but if I think because maybe my, my, my school academia wasn't great. I wasn't brilliant at school, so I'd needed to find other ways of sort of succeeding in life. And, and 
in some ways sort of making a name for myself at, at maybe even a young age. So I got home and explained to my parents what, what had happened at school that day and I had no idea what to do and it was my father who said, well, contact a Formula One team, which I think I picked myself off the floor laughing. Don't be ridiculous, Dad, you're, you're kidding. That's never going to be the case. But we found, ironically... We lived in Woking at the time, which is which is famously known for being the home of McLaren and has been for a number of num- many many years. Purely coincidence, nothing more than that. Purely coincidence. We didn't move to Woking because of McLaren. McLaren didn't move to Woking because of us. But we did find ourselves living there. So they were the first people to call. Back then, they said that they didn't do such thing. That's all changed now. But they certainly didn't back in the uh, mid mid late 80s next person on the list was was Brevens and they said yeah come along which I just couldn't believe as you can well imagine and I think just whether it was my upbringing my father's parenting the importance of hard work I think you know even when I was at school I had four or five different uh, part-time jobs so I certainly understood it even at that stage the importance of hard work and uh, and what was needed to get on in life so I knew it was an opportunity I certainly didn't believe for a moment that that week would lead on to something else but I knew I had to make the best impression I think I've always I've always I even think about this today and and maybe you know I never I don't know if you call it in Australia bunking off but when you don't go to school plain truant yeah, true. I never I never missed a day of school I never smoked behind the bike sheds. I, I was always, a, I was going to be the kid that got found out when many others got away with it. And, and I think that's still the case today. So, so I knew I had to do well. I didn't want to disappoint anybody. I didn't want to disappoint myself or my parents. So I gave that week absolutely everything. I was the keenest kid on the street. And, and funnily enough, you know, uh, out of all the other kids, the school teachers were to pay a surprise visit to every kid with it, whatever they were doing during that week and I actually had six separate teachers come along and surprise me so they were all fairly impressed with what I was doing at that point. I have to ask as um, Brabham is a, such a famous name in this country at the time I think Bernie Eccleston owned Brabham F1 but did you actually meet get to meet um, Jack or Ron Turanak? I'd met Ron Turanak many years later I did meet meet Jack because actually David was one of the drivers in what was it would have been 1990 I guess so uh, going back to the, the story I did my week's work experience sent them a letter saying how grateful I was and everything else I, I must have impressed because May uh, following year May 1987 I did my last school exam at 16 was was planning to go to college for a couple of years technical college and then go on to university that was the plan but really it was very open-ended as to where that would lead but uh yeah i I called them up and said would would they mind if i came along for the day to 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 meet everybody and see the new car and they said yes three o'clock in the afternoon which i was disappointed i was hoping it was going to be the whole day but anyway went along and cut a long story short they 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 interviewed me and and said would i like a job so i had my last exam on the thursday and started working for a formula one team on the monday at the age of 16. in those days it was nothing like it is now in terms of the size of the thing but it still must have been an inspiring environment yeah i I, look england anyway maybe is slightly different to the west rest of the world and its knowledge of formula one and motor sport is 
arguably the hub of certainly Formula One in the world. And it is different. You're absolutely right. You know, the media attention that it gains today compared to what, 33 years ago, is completely different. But it's it, it was still high profile, and I, I was that kid who <laughs> was the different one who was um, who was working for a Formula One team at the age of 16. I met, met Jack, I, I, I you know, uh, didn't meet Ron Turniak, but uh, certainly met Bernie. Bernie met me, I met Bernie. A, a fantastic character. You've got to bear in mind that at the time, only 100 people working for a Formula One team. I think there was 98 at Rams at the time, and that included the receptionists and the guy who cut the grass once a week to produce two cars, and albeit maybe 16 races compared to the 20, 21, 22 we get nowadays. But nevertheless, still the same job fundamentally. Obviously, technology has changed and, and so on, and uh, innovation has changed whole, uh, a great deal. That's why we have eight, 900 people, 1,000 people working for a Formula 1 team. But Bernie knew every single person by name and used to do his tour at 10 o'clock every single morning without fail. And, of course, at 9.55, everybody was almost standing to attention in military fashion, knowing that Bernie was almost coming around to check the beds, you know. And uh, so my, uh, A couple of times I met Bernie myself. He, For some reason, uh, when you walk into the room with him, you feel like you're about to be inspected. It's uh, Yeah. I mean, that, look, there's people in life, isn't there, Michael, that have absolutely huge presence and when they walk into a room have this aura about them. And certainly Bernie had that for a guy who's only five foot one. It's absolutely incredible how, how he commanded that. Uh, but he did, you know, you were, in some ways, you were kind of scared of the guy. He was, you know, fearful, you know, you did. Um, and he played little tricks on everybody as well, you know. More often than not, he'd walk through the workshop and everybody would be standing to attention and he'd put his hand in his pocket and accidentally, supposedly, accidentally pull out a £20 note and drop it on the floor. And the test was who would pick up the £20 note and run up, Bernie, Bernie, I, I, you dropped this. So, yeah, maybe that was just, that's just one of the many, many, Bernie stories, but uh, yeah. And I do a bit of a Bernie impression, which I'm not going to do for you because every time I do the Bernie, there's expletives in it because... We can't on this show, no, 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 no. So we'll leave that for the adult version. So who are the drivers that were, were driving with Brabham at that period of time? When I joined, it was Ricardo Patrese, Andrea De Cesaris, and then that sort of changed into Stefano Modena. Gregor Fotek, David Brabham, and then we had the Martin Brundle and Mark Blundell years, okay. which was a couple of years on the trot. Still famous friends with Mark Blundell today, and uh, only spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, actually, and, uh, yeah, might be doing some business in the future. So he, he was a great guy and uh, went on to be a McLaren driver as well in years uh, followed. So after five years at Brabham, it was off to McLaren. What, what, change, what motivated that change? I think the five years at Bradham, and I, I, I will always say this, it was Formula One teams didn't do apprenticeships by any stretch, but it was as close as I got to one. And they don't really do apprenticeships today, never have. But I think my experience at Bradham's was, was close to it. The whole agreement was I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. There was the notion that I might end up in the design office. That's kind of what the thought was. Maybe I might go back to university at some point. Who knew? So I, I sort of spent 12 months, six months in pretty much every department, whether it be the composite department, gearbox department, sub-assembly, machine shop, fabrication. I was everywhere. And over that five years, as a, leaving as a 21-year-old, 
I had a pretty rounded knowledge of Formula One. I probably had the arrogance to go with it, actually, to be honest, looking back, I thought I, I probably knew it all. But when, unfortunately, Brabham's closed down at the end of 91 season, I, I was forced to leave. Everybody was made redundant. And so an opportunity came up at McLaren and McLaren made it fairly clear that I didn't know everything, even if I thought I did. <laughs> but but it, 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 was, it was great. And for somebody who always believed that they wanted to do something bigger and better, broaden their, their knowledge. Those formative years at, at Brabham's gave me that, that. That gave me the springboard to believe that actually this is good. Not never to be happy with what you're doing, but there's a degree of that. There was always a degree of that. There was always wanting to do the next thing. I think I believed that my career in Formula One was pretty safe, especially joining McLaren. You know, they've been around for a long time. Knew that I'd have to do something pretty wrong to to leave that team or Formula One in, in entirely. So keep your nose clean, keep on pushing on, keep on listening, keep on learning. And that's certainly what I did. So if my memory serves me correctly, one of your first jobs was working with Ayrton Senna. Yeah, I spent sort of first six months or so, this is sort of end of 91, beginning of 92, working in sub-assembly. Then I sort of joined the test team, joined the race team. So became a mechanic. It was it was the next step. I, I think those five years at, at Brabham's were one of a little bit of frustration, seeing, using the word again, heroes. But it wasn't always drivers that were heroes to me. Actually, possibly engineers, mechanics and, and people in the sport were greater heroes than even the drivers to me because you could relate to them a lot closer. And a lot of those people had positions that I desired maybe and uh, and they were great inspiration to me and certainly the McLaren uh, mechanics at Brabham to me were seen as these these amazing heroes that traveled the world and went to these far off places and then you saw them on TV on a Sunday afternoon as well so that was quite attractive and yeah joining McLaren that was let me uh, let me have the opportunity to dress up as a packet of cigarettes and and travel the world and that that opportunity was offered to me and got Got a chance to work with Ayrton and that was pretty much the one of the first things I did, which was, as I say, you know, those photographs that I was going through only a week or so ago, seeing posters on the wall, there was posters of Ayrton Senna on my bedroom wall. And then, okay, a few years later, there I am doing his seatbelts up. And, and that was almost one of the first things I did as a mechanic and incredible, incredible. And kind of thought at that moment, the thought that passed through me was maybe this is my big moment in Formula One. This is it now. And I've sort of achieved what I wanted to achieve. Probably the next day I realised there was a lot more to achieve. But for that moment in time, that was, I, I thought I'd kind of made it. Ayrton and Helene Prost and Nigel Mantle and the other drivers you worked with, were they uh, big in your in your mind, but were they big at that time or did their uh, aura come with time? I certainly, you know, this is beginning of 92 season, so Ayrton had already won, you know, a couple of championships and Gerhard Berger was teammate at the time. So, yes, but certainly Ayrton was, you know, at the height of his career, the height of dominance and, and, and was revered as a driver and had already picked up all the skills to overtake people. And you see that yellow helmet coming behind you. What do I do? Do I want to crash or shall I just let him pass? All that stuff. Uh, it was always had, you know, was with Ayrton at that point. I think he probably had that from the age of six anyway. But but certainly, I you know, I, I learned a lot from the guy. I didn't speak an awful lot with him. But when I did, you listened to every word he had to say, whether it was technical, whether it was worldly wise or, or, or whatever. Absolutely incredible, incredible human being, whether goodness knows what he would have done if he didn't go into Formula One. And many people say if he had 
got to the point of retirement, he would have become president of Brazil. And maybe there's an awful lot of truth in that. And I wouldn't have put it past the guy to have gone on and done that. Yeah, incredible human being, very intense, very dedicated to what he was doing. And I think that sort of that sort of dedication and belief in yourself that you can succeed at any cost. And for him, it was any cost. It was a high price to pay, but really any cost. And I think from that moment, then I, I, I think my career in some ways went up a gear and my, my desire to succeed got even bigger than it was before. That was the year of Honda, Honda yeah, yeah. I, on a visit to McLaren a couple of years ago, I, we were down in the car assembly area and they had Eden's Honda McLaren there. Yep. They just rebuilding it and putting it together. And I spoke to the mechanic and I said, oh, did you, do you rebuild the motor? And he said to me, I know we've never touched the motor. No, you don't no, touch no, a Honda no, motor. No. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't really touch any, you know, the, the engines are for the engine suppliers and, and uh, maybe it's slightly different at Mercedes these days because obviously they're one of the same and maybe at Ferrari. But no, Honda were very, very uh, secretive, you know. You, you bolt the exhausts on and you bolt the radiators on and depending on who has ownership of the clutch that year, you might bolt the clutch, on, uh, clutch assembly on too. But as far as getting inside it, no, absolutely not. That's um, just an amazing era when, when Honda came in. They really brought that Japanese mentality to the process. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so. And that's why even in this modern era of, of Honda and they had their troubled times, ironically, with McLaren again when they decided to come back in, I think anybody in the sport knew that they, they would get there in the end. And, you know, I think last year, 2019, you know, the Grand Prix wins they had with Red Bull and, the, you know, the performance they had, that will continue. Uh, and they're, they're, yeah, very focused on what they do. Incredible. It seems strange that Toyota never succeeded, you know, given the uh, same I kind of... A, yeah, I think that's a... Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think that was... Look, they didn't necessarily have the partnership with McLaren that Honda did, or actually Honda had obviously the partner, you know, when they got into Formula One once again, because they obviously had an involvement back in the 60s. But once they got back in sort of in the in the 80s, in, the, in that tur- turbo era, they joined with... Williams in 84, end of 84, and Spirit Honda, actually, Stefan Johansson drove for them what, in 83, I think. God, you're really, um, really racking the, uh, the memory banks well, here. You're but, a wealth of knowledge from um, my perspective. <laughs> but yeah, you know, and that, that journey through the, the turbo era and then, you know, the V10s and, and, and the V12s and then at the end of 92, that was, that was their, their last year at that moment in time. But I think Honda have a sort of, let's say, a bit of a tradition of climbing to the top of the mountain and when they reach the top of the mountain saying right we're going to go and climb another mountain we're not going to try and stay on top of this mountain they move on and they've shown over the over the years certainly in formula one that that's kind of the mentality that they have so not to give up which is maybe quite japanese anyway is the mentality they're going through at the moment but maybe if they win a world championship next year will they continue the following year who knows I remember Mr. Toyota talking one day and Toyota's mentality was to get really good at something and then they were expecting to step away from cars and do other things, but, but things overtook them and they became the greatest car company in the world. But that, that old Japanese mentality and Honda's now into jet aircraft and things, it's just quite remarkable. Yeah. I think Honda tried to start from an absolute blank sheet of paper and create a team, engines, everything, all all and throwing lots of money at it. But I don't believe you can build a team just like that. It takes time. And if you've got a core foundation to begin with and 
going on to Red Bull. They they didn't start from scratch. It was from Jackie Stewart's team. It was from Jaguar, and and they moved on. So I think Honda were trying to do it all at once and have success overnight and throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at it and believing that the hundreds of millions of dollars would uh, bring them success, but it didn't. So that segues right into the transition to Red Bull. How did that come about, given that um, McLaren is the most remarkable place to work at and to work with? I mean, where did Red Bull come from? Yeah, look, I, 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 was, I suppose that there have been, I can't say for a moment that every season, all 28 years of Formula One was a fairy tale. Or as my father used to say, it was a fairy tale and then used to follow it with the word grim. There were grim times in Formula One and there were some dark times at at McLaren for sure. As much as I yearned being a mechanic and travelling the world, I think I was was unfortunately a mechanic probably in completely the wrong era of Formula One. Fortunately not in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s when, when drivers didn't last very long and there was a lot of fatalities that was not a great era but certainly in the 70s the the James Hunt era let's say and the Barry Sheen of bikes you know it was I know this isn't necessarily for adults but it was a rock and roll time there was everybody worked hard but played hard yeah unfortunately I was a mechanic when we worked hard and worked hard and working at 23 23 and a half hour day was not unusual. And I, I, I mean that quite literally. And when I say that to people, yeah, you're kidding. Sometimes you've, you've finished up in the garage at four o'clock, half past four in the morning, and you got in the minibus to go back to the hotel just to get a shower, only to turn around and come back again. And sometimes there wasn't time to go back to the hotel and we didn't even do that. And we just soldiered on. No such thing as park, you know, park ferme for the cars. And, and, uh, and nowadays... Formula One staff aren't allowed to work those hours. You know, they are kicked out of the circuit quite rightly at some point during the evening and only allowed in at, at a time in the morning. So there's a curfew, which there wasn't in my time. So it was hard. I was racing, I was testing, and it was tough. It was really tough when you, you know, I remember one test in Estoril. I think we did it a couple of years on the trot, actually. I think it was the Peugeot year, which would have been 1994 and probably the first year of Mercedes in 95 we had a three-week test down in Estoril and we worked 21 days straight working on average 20-hour days and we were broken when we came back we uh we we weren't best of friends we really got it on with each other at the end it was it was really hard Formula One even today requires a lot from you it expects you to give a hundred percent and a real 100%, and you don't necessarily get 100% back. It's great working for teams that succeed and win, and it's it's good validation for what you do, but you can work those long, hard hours and actually not get any success back. And there's plenty of teams out there that don't win and haven't won and potentially won't win in the future. So it is a demanding industry to be in. And I think for me, I, I stopped travelling at the end of ninety nine. Actually had a heart attack at the time, which we've spoken about before. Um, and that was on the back of um, a season where I started work on the 1st of January that year. And at the end of July, hadn't had a day off. I'd worked seven days a week for, what, seven months of the year, seven, nearly eight months of the year. And uh, it just got on top of me and um, and the body gave up. Spat a piston. I spat a piston, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, spat a piston and the, the conrod came right out. 
And uh, yeah, I I jokingly say, but I kind of mean it in some ways, that that was uh, a blessing in disguise because it um, opened up an opportunity for me to stop travelling, which is something that I was seeking at that moment. And it got me into the operational side of the business. But McLaren being McLaren, and I don't want to speak ill of them, I still have many friends and a, and a lot of respect for McLaren. Ironically, I, when I, whenever I dream at night, I dream McLaren, and I'm still wearing red and white, and so is everybody else. I don't dream Red Bull and I don't dream Braden. So there's something about it that it still means an awful lot to me. But after 15 years, it was time to move on. It, 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 I, I wasn't... I wasn't progressing in the way that I wanted to progress. My What I was seeing as an opportunity, McLaren weren't seeing as an opportunity. So, yes, Red, Red Bull came along and between Christian and Adrian, I, I joined. Uh, I think maybe they saw me as being somebody that could work a little bit of magic. I'd worked with Adrian Newey, of course, uh, when, when Adrian was at McLaren. I think he also was slightly disillusioned and w- similar different pay um, scale but maybe his reason for leaving was similar to my reason for wanting to leave to um, one explore other opportunities I'd been there 15 years that's an awful long time to be in one place but yeah to see what other opportunities were out there and I had a belief of at that moment how a Formula One team could be run differently untraditionally and the opportunity to implement that at McLaren was never going to happen, but it could happen at, at Red Bull. If I can stop it just before you get to that, what I'm hearing here is that you've just said at this point in time you've had 15 years of practical experience in one of the most complex games in the, in the world. Um, you know, I think uh, space is probably the only thing that's even more complex to some context, but from a student's perspective, it's your passion that took you through and a capacity to work hard and and to pull your, roll your sleeves up and is what took you through all of that. And that's what's led you to the ability to walk into Red Bull. It wasn't how many degrees you had or whatever. It was your application of your own capacity to solve problems and to do things. Yeah, 100%. I don't think I'm a particularly... You may be confused by me saying, I don't think I'm particularly smart. And, and you're sort of a wry grin on your face. What do you mean you're not smart? Uh, academically, I left school with not many qualifications. I, I never went to college. I never went to university. But, hey... I, I was involved in arguably one of the most dynamic businesses in the world. And not only did I survive, I succeeded in that environment. It's competitive from start to finish. And I mean, in every department, I think even the, the people who clean the toilets do it in a competitive fashion. It's, it's obviously... Thankfully, not quite so much as it was when I first started. Very male-orientated. It arguably still is, but that, that's changed massively over the years. A huge change, one of the biggest changes I've seen. But everybody in, certainly McLaren, it was, it was in the, the air. Competition was in the air. Survival was in the air. And certainly when I was a McLaren mechanic it it was almost after every race after every test it's like being a footballer or a cricketer that you went into the changing room and you were constantly having your performance analyzed by the managers of how well you did that weekend and and you could almost be put on the bench 
for the next Grand Prix if you didn't perform. And, and, and that, that style of uh, management or running a business is, is pretty hard, but it, it toughened me up and it, it made me want to succeed more and more. But, but yeah, I, I realised one, I'll tell you one little thing that, uh, that I realised I had as a survival tactic was one of the things I used to do was, seems crazy now, but it was an Excel spreadsheet that I had on my computer and at the end of every day, Sue Skelly at McLaren, who was the drawing office manager, she used to dump a pile of drawings, everything that had been drawn that day on my desk. And it was my job to sift through every drawing, whether it be a component drawing or an assembly drawing, and pretty much input every single component into my spreadsheet. And that was my production document. So that's how I kept track of every single component stock and where it was in production, what we needed to manufacture, what we didn't. And I realised by doing this, what I was able to do was almost, I realised I had a, almost a photographic memory. I could actually go into my production meetings and quote drawing numbers. So I could say MP4 18-SF 012345 and say that's a front top wishbone bolt. And I would wow the crowd and everybody in the room, they jokingly called me sort of Rain Man, that the, had, the fact that I had this ability to remember every single part and number and be able to relate one to the other. But I think I, I created that ability out of survival because once I realised it was maybe a bit of a talent, I could get on. It would give me some respect, some notoriety, if only in a meeting room and get me some form of respect. And it was things like that that you realise you have to do. You have to build these skills and these talents as you go to progress to the next level, almost like a modern-day computer game. It's not. But in the same sort of way, you need to create, collect you know, things along the way for you to get to the next level. That's still relevant today in a sense. You can see those people who really do their job properly, you know, get to know that what they're doing in, in great detail and they, they have huge value to you. I think as the engineers I used to employ, the ones who really studied and became, knew every part number and knew how it fitted together yeah. were huge value um, in, in getting a problem out the door, getting yeah. something made. But, you know, my education finished at 16 and I still, to this day, looking back, have never been on a training course of any description. You know, and some of the, some of the things and, that, are, that I've done and whether it be across a whole season of Formula One or whether it be one single process on one single day, it's been done out of, uh, largely through experience. It hasn't been through an education. Nobody's ever told me how to do it. They may have done, but almost subliminally through going to work every day and learning on the job and having that practical experience. That's why I say even my last day of Formula One at the end of 2015 at Red Bull, I was probably still drawing upon experiences from those days back in the 80s at Braddens that allowed me to relate to pretty much every function of a Formula One team, whether it be laying up a composite front wing or machining a front upright or inspecting something, drawing something, being able to sit down to next to a design engineer and actually be able to have a proper conversation when he's looking at designing new brake ducts and being able to give an opinion. At a point I was, my brain was going when you were talking then, but you know, I've been pushing for some time this, uh, I think that it was Alan Finkel, our chief scientist who put me on the track, but 
two of the skills that we learn, uh, um, the capabilities that we have that we learn when we're kids and go all the way through our lives is analytical problem solving and communication. And everything that you've been talking about is about analytical problem solving and being able to communicate that with people is the two key things that run right through your career. And, and if you do those really well, that's where success arises. Is that fair comment? Yes, totally. I, I, I think looking back at my eight years at Red Bull and, and not necessarily even the four years of winning the championships in the middle of that, but before and after, all during that time were, were exactly put down to that. It, it was absolute. And, and the significance of me saying I was never, never necessarily directly taught, it was all based on experience, that's where it then came into play. It was... Things to me became quite binary when it came to problem solving. It either worked or it didn't. There was kind of nothing in between, really. So you could you could unpack a process and really look at the detail of a process and say, how do we make this better? What is the weak link in this? Identify what that is and collectively, as a group, realise what the solution is and implement that solution and communicate that solution to what was then a large group of people. And if you do this repetitively over and over and over again, regardless of whether it be technical, a piece on the car, or whether it be the organisation, which is what I was responsible for, and that's what I did. And I guess, you know, growing up with innovation in Formula One and technology continually growing, and that was the problem ultimately that I highlighted, that the business wasn't keeping up with the technology of the car. The rate of innovation operationally and technically wasn't in parallel. And actually we needed the operational side of the business to be at a greater rate than the technology side. So we could turn around to the technical function and say, right, we're ready for the next thing. Rather than always being on the back foot and being very reactive, I wanted us to be proactive and having that rate of communication and that rate of change and that rate of problem solving being so analytical daily. So you fix a problem today, you almost revisit it tomorrow because what was good today isn't necessarily going to be great tomorrow. And that's just innovation. And that's how we work in the technical space. I just transferred it into the operational side. But my impression and you go along with, I have this belief that we've got our children so focused on, on getting marks and, and learning things out of a book and, and they're missing this um, focus on this problem solving. And I know in university in New South Wales, you're changing that to be yeah. very project-based. And, and I, we see in F1 in schools, all of the kids are solve a problem, solve a problem, solve a problem to the, to the point when they go to world, the world final. They're just quite remarkable at solving any problem and, and any handling any situation, which now you're talking about, you've moved into operations and operations or engineering is exactly the same. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Once again, not to fill this conversation up with cliches, but engineering is everywhere. Yeah. And I think it was having that, maybe I already always had the operational problem solving from an operational perspective rather than a pure technical side. You know, I think... I, I think all the time I was a mechanic, I don't think I felt comfortable in my skin that what I was doing was 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 my calling. But certainly ending up doing what I was doing at Red Bull, I certainly did. But I needed that practical experience. I needed to understand how those how, how I can take apart... I've got my watch in my hand. I've taken it off because it keeps banging the table. But 
can I take this apart and can I put it back together again? And if I come up with a problem of how it going back together again, how do I fix that? And having that analytical mind, and I think I've got that, and I think, I think just having that and the experience that I, that I gained over the years, I remember being in, in meeting rooms or phones ringing during a Grand Prix weekend, wherever they may, may be at that moment in time, and we just had an accident, whatever, whatever, we need this, that and the other, and, and me just being able to, in the blink of an eye, come up with the solution and having a group of people going, oh, my God, how did you do that? You're talking project management here as well, which yeah. has really become buried oh. as one of those um, underlying skills that you've picked up along the way. Yeah, Project management verging on crisis management, but but one of the same, yes. One's just um, <laughs> comes with a lot of communication. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Red Bull, how, what were the things you had to do to win four world championships? What are, is the key thing that you changed or had to work on more than anything? I think I think for me it was the realization coming from McLaren, very very professional team in everything it did. Ron Dennis and his attention to detail throughout the entire business, whether it be his need for cleanliness and order in an almost military fashion. Some people didn't understand it after 15 years, I certainly did. The clear desk policy, which frustrated many people. But, you know, I I understood that if you've got order in your life and order on your desk, chances are that the gearbox you've just built is also going to have some order about it. So there, there was absolutely method in his madness, but it was absolute military precision in how we did things and we couldn't stray off the path in any way. Leaving there on the Friday and joining Red Bull on the Monday was about as polar opposite in Formula One terms as you're ever going to get. And having a drawing office where there's design engineers walking around without shoes and socks on was just something that was absolutely incredible to me. It's like the Byron Bay of F1. <laughs> like the Byron Bay of F1. Uh, put it this way, I, 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 I don't know if you can hear this, this is some facial hair that I, I have. The last time I had a wet shave, this is God's honest truth, was August 2007, the week I left McLaren, and I haven't shaved since because being clean-shaven at McLaren is an absolute must. So... That's just a, an example of, of that, that state of order. Red Bull presented itself as being a team that knew how to enjoy themselves. They certainly had the fun element from the moment they went to work to the moment they left. But it was chaos, pretty much. No order whatsoever. If McLaren was professional, Red Bull was amateur. And, uh, you know, if anybody from Red Bull's listening to this, you know, I, I mean it in the nicest possible way. I'm trying to create some comparisons between the two, but there, there's fairly big ones. It's, it's funny you talk about coming from McLaren, that's um, the buildings designed like the yin and yang. Yes. Uh, the the, the, the um, chaos versus the order. Yeah. And walking the line between the two. And here you've gone from McLaren, which is absolute order, to yeah. Red Bull, which is chaos, which is jumping across the other side of this yin and yang, which is quite interesting. But I think it was it was important to, to understand, look, I could have arguably picked up all the working processes that existed at McLaren and just planted them straight into Red Bull, but I knew that that wasn't ever going to be the fix. You can you, That never works. I think for Red Bull it was important to find a point of difference, and this is where my strategy of how to create a different Formula One team was allowed to come into play. 
Formula One teams approached Formula One motor racing in a very similar way. Some cars might be red, some cars may be silver, some cars may be blue, but actually fundamentally the way they all go racing at that time was exactly the same, pretty much. The approach was the same. Formula One at the end of the day is um, trying to mitigate risk in every facet of what they do. There's a point in time when the cars go out, when the lights go out, where who knows what's going to happen. There's something we can control, but there's other factors that they can't control. Another car hitting your car, etc. But Formula One try, tries to mitigate risk, to lower the level of risk, to create that degree of efficiency. To take a group of people from chaos to, to winning, I mean, that's a, psychologically a huge change in culture change in a whole lot of things was that easy to do or was it really no <laughs> uh, how did i do it this next question <laughs> yeah how did i do it i knew you were gonna ask that because it's not it's not a simple answer because you can't you can't if you could bottle it i'd, I'd be selling it and making millions i wouldn't be talking to you i'd be i don't know where i'd be i'm very much on this structure and order and building a team where every individual knows their purpose within the team. And that's certainly something Red Bull didn't have. I, I remember, I think I'd been at, at the team for two weeks and I think there was a tyre test on at Silverstone and they packed up two cars, off they went to Silverstone and they'd forgotten to pack the wheels. And it was a tyre test and they'd taken no wheels. So that had a couple of vans have to take the wheels up. So there was clearly people within that team, the test team at the time, that didn't really fully understand their role and responsibilities within the team. So if we can take a team of individuals, because invariably I've certainly learned over the years, any problems that are incurred, no matter what they be, invariably it comes back to the human being and team structures and, and everything else. So it was very much me building a team that was capable of winning a world championship. Because if you don't have a team winning capable of winning you won't win and I use analogies all over the place now if I want to win the cricket world cup and if I go with a bunch of AFL players we're not going to win the cricket world cup so we need to get best talent that's out there on that point now you say the best talent now given that you've come through and that talent's not measurable with a degree it's not measurable with some questionnaire it's about skills and capabilities you're talking about Mm -hmm. so that the best is not uh, an academic best it's a, a capability best or a ability for people to solve a problem or to get something done or to work hard or to get it out the door so you've got to choose people in a completely different way is that just reputation that you use to do that or i i, I used to God, i used to hate with a passion hr departments that put on job adverts you know degree at this standard and i certainly didn't require it it's something ironically my wife who has a pretty senior role over here in Australia as well. She also didn't go to university and now works for a telco in a fairly senior position. And we both share the views of actually, I'd much rather employ somebody who had spent two years working at McDonald's practically because they've had that customer facing experience, probably great training in almost that same military environment as a McLaren. It's McDonald's, but the experience you can learn from that is exceptional. So certainly in my world, a degree isn't necessary. Hopefully my daughter's not listening to this because <laughs> it sort of contradicts everything we're trying yeah, to do. Sort of parents have but, a changed perspective on things. But, hey, I don't, I don't think, you know, I, I don't for a moment, here's me, professor of practice at a university, I, I, you know, this is not a great marketing thing that I'm <laughs> saying here. But, hey, look, there's more to it. 
there's more to it. An academic career, great. It shows one side, but I think there's a whole entire other side. You know, my, my daughter's, um, uh, she was, she's not anymore, but she was a, a scout. And I love that dynamic of a, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 year old going to school and being a Cub Scout. They learn, they, they learn how to light fires, climb trees, tie knots, all the practical things that you don't learn at school, that you don't get from that traditional education. And I think certainly at the university, that's kind of what we're trying to do now. I'm not teaching people how to light fires, but you get the academic side and you get the practical side as well. If I could have had my five years at, uh, at Brabham's and learning all the skills that I learned there, but also walked out with a, with a university degree, it would be the best of both worlds. It really would, to have that practical and the academic side. It, it gives you a fully rounded individual. Formula One teams don't do apprenticeships. They don't really do work experience. They do to a point. It's pretty good, much better than it used to. But they do employ graduates now, which is something they never did. They always used to hire the best. You always had to have X amount of experience in a Formula One team or a you know sports car team. That was always a prerequisite. But now Formula One teams are quite happy to take graduates straight out of university. They see the benefit. One, they can probably pay them a little less, but they can also round them into the individuals they need them to be. But one of the biggest problems is they, they come in maybe as a design engineer, managed to sit in front of a CAD station, know how Katia works, but anything beyond that is a challenge. So I think it's all those soft skills, those project management skills, the understanding of how finances work, how business works. Do we need to design this component out of titanium that costs X? Could it be made out of aluminium, which costs half of X? So it's all those other practical experiences that need to be gained along the way. And I think certainly a university has a responsibility towards it, a responsibility towards the future employees and the, the, the students who want to go off and get those fantastic careers, whether they be in Formula One or something else. I, I totally agree. Again, you're coming back to maybe you're singing my tunes here or the, my, my Bible, if that's the term, but the whole concept of learning, and I was lucky enough to learn on the shop floor as well in that context, but learning um, analytical problem solving, communication and stuff. And then the university part just gave you access to where to go and find knowledge when you needed it. But the application for that was all of that common sense stuff that you learned on the shop floor. And I spent years, 10 years old, sweeping the floor and learning how to swear when I was talking to the welders. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I had a, my father made me work for a, um, a Greek toolmaker who, who only knew three words in English and they were all... Explosives. Explosives. <laughs> But you learn an awful lot about life and then, then the rest of life is about using those areas, the education, the university degree, to just complement how you solve a problem, give you more options to solve a problem. I think employers also, you know, if, if let's just talk engineering students, but a four-year degree at a university, graduate into the employment space, an employer now wants that graduate to hit the ground running. They don't want a year of onboarding to introduce for the, potentially the first time all those soft skills with somebody at the age of 21, 22, 23. They should know that. And that's, I think, where the responsibility lies within the university or earlier so, in high school or even earlier than that. So I think we all have a responsibility. Well, you've given me another segue here. Okay. <laughs> to my next question. <laughs> uh, you've been lucky enough to see um, 
everyone in school's kids up close and what do you see that they're learning? I mean, I have to say, when we started the process and we were involved in that and subs and everything else that we do, that I really actually did model it on scouting or outward bound or mm. if kids are thrown in the deep end and have to fight their way out of that because I found when I was a scout that was the, the greatest learning exercise of having to fight your way out of a problem or you know, you're stuck in the bush and a bushfire comes, yep. how do you get out of that? They're real-life fears that are driven into you and... I just wonder what your perspective of the kids that you're seeing at F1 in schools because we're really bringing that problem-solving right down to a very early age. First off, absolutely amazed. I'm, I'm no longer amazed when I see them because it's now more of an expectation because, you know, but the very first time I remember I did some judging at one of the, the regionals and, and I, I just could I, and I'm not saying this just because we're having this conversation, but I was blown away at the level of knowledge and the standard of work that was being put in front front of me from, yeah, nine, ten students, just incredible. I often think if F1 in schools existed when I was at school, where my career path would have gone, I, I, I goodness only knows, um, maybe it wouldn't have gone the way that it, it did. But I think it, you're quite right. If, if, if students at that age are, are given a, a loose set of challenges... To, to, to solution in front of them and are pretty much left alone in the woods with the, the fire and see what they come up with. I think, I think the challenge, it's, it's a great challenge and I, I do it even at the, 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 the university level. We've got a design starting next Monday, a brand new solar car and we've got 29 students and we've got about 18 months to do it and it's going to have to be the most radically designed, most innovation-inspiring vehicle we've ever done and we're not really going to help them in some ways we're going to advise them along the way but really it's a big brother moment most of the team haven't met each other they haven't worked together before because there's all all those dynamics to to understand and learn it's not just you as an individual taking on your own responsibility within that team but it's working as a team working as a collective and those challenges at that age are just sensational to be given those sorts of opportunities, whether it be Formula One in school or whatever it might be. But if that is the vehicle to do it, so be it. And it's fantastic. I was at the world final just a few months ago in Abu Dhabi and I got to sit and I'm, you know, I see enough of it to know how good the kids can mm. be. But I sat in on one of the engineering verbal presentations that the kids were doing from kids from Melbourne, from Trinity Grammar and that was uh, 17. Mm-hmm. And they sat down and discovered that they started the discussion with the engineers talking about how they sat down and did a, a MATLAB analysis, yeah, putting the tolerancing and things so they could determine that they mapped out. If they spent time on the, designing this component, what was the final impact on the final car? And they went through every single component on the car to determine which ones had the greatest impact where they'd spend their time and effort before they started and then they'd forget the others. So they'd take the simplest of wheels but if they focused on the gas cylinder and how it was put, that would increase it by 10% and you couldn't get that 10% somewhere else. And the discussion that these kids were having blew my mind. I mean, for them to be doing that kind of analysis at the start of a design process when they're 17 years old, I was floored, absolutely floored. And uh, that's when the hair stands up on the back of my neck when I see kids. Where do you think they got that approach from? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> that's a simple answer. But, but the, the school they go to, um, Trinity Grammar, have actually won the F1 Schools World Final twice before. And I think that the, the differentiating feature at that school is the teacher. Um, 
and he doesn't teach, he guides. And th- there's also a lot of um, feedback from the kids from years before. So there's a whole agenda of kids from previous years coming back and helping the new kids come through. So as each year you learn something different, those kids come back and teach the next group of kids what to do and how to make it better, how to do it better. Um, so Peter Clinton, who's the teacher, facilitates that process and it's like an F1 team where there's a lot of knowledge that's stored and left over and they work on so rather than every student just building on the on a brand new problem they get all the knowledge from the all the previous students and then build on that but but the level of engineering I mean that that just as a process is just innovation personified it's not just technical it's the overall approach and innovating and Innovation is just making things better. Yeah. And that's whether it's the final product or the process that sits behind the final product. Uh, yeah, and I, I must admit, I was sitting there and I was stunned and they had three young engineers that would have been in their early 30s, I think. And I'm sure all of them were gobsmacked. They had no idea how to ask these kids questions because the kids were so far in front of them. And their kids you know, still got another two years at school before they go to union. And they'll be a, a brilliant engineers when they get there. They would have so, learned all of them, the Brabham stuff, if that's the term. Yeah. They, they would have gained all of that Brabham knowledge going through F1 and they're going to walk out into to a career and just walk away with it. They, 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 they've learned the hard yards early. Okay. I think it's just... Hopefully they'll become staggering. a UNSW, hey? <laughs> They're in Melbourne, you have to convince them to come yeah, out. well, you know, <laughs> I've been quite convincing to many over the years, so... So you, you've taken all of this amazing knowledge and you know, four world championships and all of that it takes to get an organisation like that. And then you've walked into the university and you've grabbed hold of their solar car team and gone from nothing to first again. How much of that is that your F1 knowledge passing over or is that general, I've learned how to solve problems coming across? There's no magic per se. Just hard work. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think, I think it's hard work and just... Exactly, advising and just guiding, allowing, allowing whether they be students or employees, just the ability to explore and have freedom. Formula One was fantastic for having freedom. I had a huge amount of freedom. I had a, a greater level of autonomy than than anybody would ever experience in any other other walk of life. It was huge. But you had boundaries, in a sense, <sighs> like cleanliness and. Yeah. An organisation yeah, yeah, and yeah, hard yeah. work. And yeah, there's yeah. some boundaries yeah. like that. As long as we, as 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 long as we filled those buckets up to a point, there was success is never guaranteed. But if you if you look at what the ingredients of success are, and you try and maximise everything within, and that's once again going back to the word innovation. If you innovate entirely across the organisation and never take anything for granted and continually move on, it can happen. With SunSwift, the solar team, I I guess it was educating, I suppose, to a point the importance of what we were doing, the roles in teams and how to maximise opportunity, but also to give them the freedom. The the great thing with a student project like that and like Formula One in schools, it, it kind of allows you, it may even encourage you from time to time to fail. Failure isn't necessarily accepted in the outside world, but it's the greatest way to learn. And I think with me at Red Bull or 
throughout my Formula One career, I've learned a lot from failure. Not many people know I failed because I kept that very quiet, but I did. And we all have, and we all do, but it's understanding what went wrong and making the improvements so hopefully it never happens again. And all those strategic decisions I made were probably based on the fact that the last time I made the decision, it wasn't the right decision. And now I'm making the right one. With, with Sunswift, very much it was, it was to give the guys the freedom to allow them to understand what the importance was, what was at stake, how important it was, the benefits of success to them uh, and the hard work. Very difficult with a student project like that because it shouldn't be their number one focus in their life because it, is, um, it was at the time no longer. Sunswift is now embedded within the curriculum at UNSW, but last year it wasn't. Uh, It's a a new thing where most of our student projects will, over the course of time, become embedded within the curriculum. So it's practical project-based learning, but you get units of credit for it, which which is quite groundbreaking, really. Not many universities across the world are doing this, but we definitely see the benefit of doing that. But yeah, finishing finishing first and... uh, I'll, I'll tell you that the, the morning before we arrived into Adelaide, we were in first place ahead of the Dutch, probably about 10 minutes ahead of them on the road. But there was some thoughts within the team that we should have a bit of a conservative approach to get into Adelaide. And they had almost worked out strategically with this conservative approach they were suggesting that they would actually end up by finishing second. I've never taken to finishing second very well <laughs> so I think you can probably imagine my my coaching that uh, was delivered and we ended up finishing first so um, so yes maybe some of my Formula One influences were put upon them during uh, the week of the World Solar Challenge. So the next challenge what is that? For the you? next challenge okay I'm a professor of practice at University of New South Wales I run my own business as a high performance coach but I'm no longer in Formula One and as much as I, I left Formula One willingly and I thought I'd enjoy the outside world and give that a go, I actually miss Formula One with a passion. I miss the people, I miss the urgency, I miss the dedication, I miss being surrounded by like-minded individuals. I miss the stress, I miss the frustration, I miss the romance of winning and uh, and everything that comes with that. So need to find something that uh, is going to give me sleepless nights and, and cause me some stress. So I have come up with a new venture. Is this the one you're talking about, I Michael? was sort of yeah, right. opening the door there. You're opening the door. Very nice. Good, good, good. So uh, the plan is to um, design and build the world's first production, and that's the key bit, production. Uh, not a prototype, but a production non-plug-in solar vehicle. So perpetually powered, which is basically the holy grail of transport, non-plug-in, so electric vehicle, solar powered, but no, no need to plug it in and no need to fill it up with diesel or petrol. You may need to fill up your windscreen wiper bottle, but I think we've got a solution for that too. So that's, that's, that's the aim. It's a, it's, a big, it's a big one. It's a bold one. And I don't doubt that it's, it's something that many are working on across the world. Like Year One, which is uh, a, an organisation that was spawned out of Eindhoven University, out of uh, World Solar Challenge team members. Undergraduate students went on to be postgraduate students and then formed their own business, Like Year One. It's a solar-powered car, but it's not perpetually powered. It is still a plug-in vehicle. So uh, I'm sure it's the, the next big race because... Uh, I think this is the the next big thing in in transport. 
Did the, did the Solar Swift, were you allowed to plug that in at night time? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's the World Solar Challenge and they're, they're solar cars, but they, they are essentially electric vehicles which uh, have enhanced power from solar. But, you know, this, the, the energy attained from the solar cells probably accounts for 20, 25% of the total energy. But the, 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 my project is 100%. It is cool. It's, it's, it's a big ask. But Elon Musk, Mark, too. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Uh, but it's it's gaining a, a a lot of momentum, and certainly even over the last couple of weeks, a lot of the a lot of momentum, a lot of probably best not to name them at the moment, but some big organisations of of are backing it and and are happy to come on board. And uh, there's certainly one significant person in this country who I have a meeting with tomorrow, who um, who is the godfather of solar. So hopefully I'll end up with his his blessing as well, uh, and we'll move move forward. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. I think we we need technology uh, to conjoin at some point. I, I I believe the technology is probably available to do it tomorrow, but not uh, in a in a commercial sense. I think the the solar cells that are required are, are probably space grade cells, and the battery technology is is still at the research phase rather than a, the, the the customer phase. Um, so possible, but we'd be looking at a card that would cost millions of dollars to buy. But this, this, the idea is that it will be a production vehicle, maybe in three, four, five years' time, uh, realistically, probably closer to five. Um, but it's a bit of a race to get there, I think, and, and uh, I want us to be the first. So my last question. I, mean, I could talk for another hour, but we'll start with one more question. Now that you're here at POM and you've come and worked here... Always have been, always have been, always will be. <laughs> What's your impression of Aussie kids and their capabilities? I don't do impressions, Michael. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> What's your perspective on, on the kids that are here and their capacity to learn? And I, I, I realise the, educa- the education system is different here to, to back home in England. Uh, and it's probably different around, it, 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 uh, different at every stage. My daughter came here at the um, age of what, which, eight, and came from a, a little country school 120 kids in the school. There was only one class per year, uh, so quite small. Uh, but she was top of the class in English and maths, and you know we thought, God, we've got a really bright child on here. And then came here, went to school in Sydney, and she wasn't the brightest kid. And we thought, what's is it just the transition? But on you know we realised education is just different here, and people learn at different rates. You know, only here Sweden, you know, they don't learn to their times table until they're eight years old or whatever it might be so we do all learn at different rates um but i'm super impressed with the education over here absolutely ironically my my daughter actually wants to go to oxford university she wants to move back to england and go to oxford which i'm kind of happy for her to do so but uh but yeah that's not 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 a reflection on the education over here certainly the the young engineers that i come across on a on a daily basis within the projects that i i work with not just Sunswift, but Redback Racing and uh, and the Hyperloop team and all the other student projects. It, it's, it, there's some incredible young people out there, Michael. There's just some absolute geniuses. And I've said to all of them, you know, whatever happens, we've all got to stay in touch because I really want to know where these young people go and what they what they go on to do. And uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by it and, and fascinated by their knowledge and, you know, just 
young guys, 18, 19 years old, who are able to talk, certainly in an electrical sense, just, it's just, I mean, as I said to you right at the beginning of this, I'm not the most intelligent person. It absolutely blows me away. But even some professors that they sit next to are just blown away by, by, by the intelligence of some of these young people. So, yeah, I, hopefully I can help them on their way and uh, maybe give them some industry insight, some of those other things that traditionally uh, universities don't present to them. One last question. I thought of another Go one. <laughs> if you were to give a message to a student or, you know, they could be all sorts of ages that might be listening to this, where would you place the importance of, of doing something because you're passionate about it? In that scheme of your developing your future, I think if you can if you can if you can realise at an early age what that passion is, and you can focus in in on it. I was listening to somebody the other day on another podcast saying, I think it was actually um, Jos Verstappen, Max Verstappen's father, and and he was talking about focus at an early age. And hey, look, maybe Max was helped along the way with his focus and his passion because of his father and what his father did but look where Max has ended up my my daughter isn't really focused on an awful lot and I wasn't really focused on, on an awful lot at a young age I wanted to play musical instruments boy I own just about every musical instrument I haven't got a musical bone in my body but I kind of realized that so I think I went through a bit of a process of trying to realize at an early age what I thought I had a talent for and can I match that talent with my passion? Look, I had a passion for Formula One. I probably realised, certainly after I was a mechanic, probably a while after that, that I had an organisational talent that I could, I could manoeuvre and transition organisations into something better. And I managed to, to match the two together. And as much as I got, did get paid for a living, didn't get paid an awful lot, uh, probably not as much as many would think, but I pretty much loved every day of working in Formula One. And if you can, at an early age, understand what that passion you have is and you've got a talent for it, you've really just got to push on and have the belief in it and want to improve yourself every day. I, I always had kind of itchy feet, as I've probably alluded to, that I always wanted to go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. It's part of innovation, really. It's it? kind of part of self-innovation and self-marketing. And I think, you know, I left Formula One at the end of 2015, looked back on it, thinking that I, ha I had a pretty good career, a pretty successful career, and I, wa I, I wanted to continue that. I wanted that to be chapter one and chapter two to be something equally as hopefully exciting and as successful. So hopefully my, my new venture... Um, will do that for me but it's always having that I think having belief in yourself as well I think I, I realised I didn't have the academia behind me so I needed to create other ways of, of progressing on through life and I, I think just having I think on my bio on my website it uses the word dogged and I think dogged is probably the, one of the best ways to describe me if I set out to do something I do it and I'll do it to the best capability that I possibly can because I want to and because I enjoy doing that and I sleep well at night knowing full well that that's what I've done and that's yeah if you if you can take a small percentage of that and continue that on wish you all the success. Well, Richard that's been the most amazing chat um, I mean I've known you for a while but 
And I've known some, and there's many more stories I think we can get out along the way. So I'll have to do this again soon. But uh, I think it's been absolutely wonderful. And I'm sure the students will gain a lot out of uh, this whole process of understanding what it's like to go to the top. So thank you very much. Bless you.